0: My name is Kirsten Davidson, and I'm your host of my new wellness podcast, Mind the Gaps. Welcome to the journey of surrendering our typical ways of looking at life to step out of our comfort zone and into our growth zone. I'm going to start off today's episode by giving you the inside scoop on my professional and personal background. I'll then get into the inspiration and meaning behind the podcast itself. And for the latter part of the episode, I'll be diving into the topic of mindfulness, For all things Mind the Gaps, you can find me on Instagram at kirsten.davidson. That's K-I-R-S-T-E-N dot D-A-V-I-D-S-O-N. I'm happy to answer any of your questions, comments, or feedback on the show, or to get a dialogue going. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, let's get started so who is kirsten davidson i live in practice as a registered psychotherapist in ontario where i work with individual adults some youth couples and families the therapy practice that i'm based out of is called peachy counseling and family support in burlington ontario you can find more details on this practice through any of my social media accounts as far as my academic background goes i earned my bachelor of arts honors with a major in psychology and a minor in family and child studies, and I got this from the University of Guelph. I followed this up with earning a Master of Arts in Counseling Psychology at Yorkville University. On the personal side of things, I was first eager to become a therapist when I was only 14 years old. Growing up, I thought I might want to be an artist, which then changed into an architect, tried to be a bit more practical, which then changed into a therapist. When I had this light bulb moment one day, and this moment can be summed up by a single quote I recently heard from Sam Harris, American philosopher and neuroscientist. He says, of all the things worth tending to, what's more important than your mind? I'll say that again. Of all the things worth tending to, what's more important than your mind? Upon realizing this as a teenager, I felt that I'd be unfulfilled in any other job and likely the most fulfilled in this one. As it turns out, I happened to be acting as a therapist well before the job was ever even on my radar. And I'll bring you on a trip down memory lane to explain this a bit more. When I was only six years old, I wrote out an actual psychological analysis for an imaginary character who I called Bob. I created a chart with one column titled Side Effects and another column beside it titled Levels 1 to 4, where I rated Bob's mood based on the intensity of his experiences. Some of these included, and I quote, breathing heavily, seeing a big spider on a door, and my favorite, rolling on the bed mindlessly. This was completely unprompted, not like it was part of a school assignment or anything since I was only six. I have no memory of doing it, but my parents found a copy of it years ago, and now we refer to my actual clients as Bob. I even included a legend on the side explaining what levels one to four meant. Very bad, okay, good, or very good. At the end, I wrote a comment section with the following summary. Bob is very unconfident, mixes up words, and goes crazy. And there's more where this came from. My parents found a journal from when I was seven years old where I created a chart to analyze how often my real friends, yes, real friends, got into arguments or fights at school. I drew out columns with each friend's name and the days of the week in rows along the side. I had a section titled Rules that says, there are two symbols that you use a happy face and a sad face. If friend X got into a fight on Monday, I would put a sad face under her name and whoever did not get into a fight, I would put a happy face. And like any good little researcher, I even had a why statement which says, and I quote, the reason why I'm doing this is because my friends tend to get into fights. So I want to see who gets into the most fights this year. Again, this was unprompted and on my own time. I do remember doing it while I was watching the Disney channel, I never actually completed the chart, but the thought was there. I remember having some pretty big existential concerns around this age. I remember this one time staring in the mirror and feeling confused and overwhelmed that, while I could see myself, there was more behind my eyes that made me me than who I was seeing in the mirror. And not just for me, but for everyone. There's a quote I read recently by American author Michael A. Singer that reminded me of this mirror moment I had. And he says, You are not who you see, you are the one who sees. I'll get into more on the subject of witnessing our own consciousness later today, but for now, we'll leave that with seven-year-old Kirsten. When I first started high school, I got set up with a career counselor outside of school, where I completed an extensive personality assessment. The counselor told myself and my parents that I scored unusually and equally high on empathy, interpersonal, and intrapersonal skills. It was also at this time that I was shown how poor my math skills were, and the whole architect idea went right out the window. Physics, let alone basic mental math, is not really in the cards for me. In retrospect, I was more in touch with the intuitive parts of myself than I had given credit for until completing that test. I started exploring the social sciences and fell in deep. I took to reading and learning about psychology and philosophy at school and outside of school. For some more context, I'm technically an only child, but my parents divorced when I was six years old and remarried several times. So I grew up with seven step siblings. I've had five step parents and I've lived in 14 different homes. Now imagine plopping my young analytical self into all of these environments amid all these people You can bet I was hyper-aware of every little thing and big thing that went on in these homes related to marriages, sibling relationships, finances, religion, loss, substance abuse. Now, don't get me wrong, there was also an abundance of love, attention, belonging, nurturing, and support in my childhood. And I'm beyond grateful to my parents for their unconditional love. It's because of this that I had the freedom to sit around creating psychoanalyses for real and imaginary friends. Now let's fast forward in time to young adult Kirsten, who picked up a book by journalist and author Johan Hari called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression. This book sparked my first paradigm shift in thinking about mental health by essentially throwing the traditional and clinical views out the window. When I say paradigm shift, what I mean is a change in my underlying assumptions about mental health. And so the book pulled me out of my comfort zone and into my growth zone, By challenging my usual way of looking at depression, I started experiencing more of these paradigm shifts and surges of passion, where this inner voice was telling me to speak out in this field and add to the conversations on mental and physical well being, in addition, of course, to being a therapist, but I wasn't ready to get involved because there were far too many gaps in my ways of thinking, feeling and behaving. I let the forceful pull of my comfort zone draw me back in from the idea of that much growth, especially as a teenager. Of being a voice in the field? No way. I was fitting in, and I wanted to keep it that way. For that time, my critical thinking and passion would be hidden from those other than my teachers, family, and the pages of those books. I started getting more comfortable taking up space in this area when I first began working as a therapist. My office is no place to shy away from my skill set and critical thinking. When I started the job, there was no doubt in my mind that this was what I would do forever. I was and am beyond passionate about the work because it embodies a huge part of who I am. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity and honor to help others and myself. Feels like a win-win. After seeing clients for about a year and confronting a lot of my own self-limiting beliefs and behaviors, that inner voice came back, telling me to speak out, but this time with way more confidence. I realized that the most rewarding part of what I do is seeing my clients experience paradigm shifts that can shake up and alter their entire approach to life for the better. I wanted to help translate these experiences outside of the four walls of my therapy office, and by then, I was in more of a growth mindset to do so. There's a quote by Picasso that says, The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. This voice was telling me to give it away. Which brings us to present day Kirsten, sitting here after having followed that inner voice, the same one that concerned me with the meaning of life when I was only a child, except now I have a microphone and I'm inviting you to engage in this beautiful, transformative and lifelong journey of Minding the Gaps. Where does the name Mind the Gaps come from? Well, for anyone who's been to the United Kingdom, you'll know that their subway stations, which they call the underground, written on the platform is the phrase, mind the gap, which literally translates to being mindful, being aware of the gap between the platform and the train entrance so that you don't fall in while you're getting on the train. My grandparents on my dad's side were born in England, and so I've got a t-shirt with the classic mind the gap logo on it, which I happen to be wearing when brainstorming a podcast title. Knowing that I wanted to use this platform, pardon the pun, to approach everyday thinking with a critical lens, I envisioned the quote-unquote gap as representing the disparities, the incompleteness, the gaps in our psyche. So what does it truly mean to mind the gaps? As you would have heard from my intro, minding the gaps on this podcast means surrendering our typical ways of looking at life to step out of our comfort zone and into our growth zone. Let me take some time to really break this down. Surrendering are typical ways of looking at life. I felt like this really encapsulated my first goal of this podcast, which is to confront and challenge our preconceived notions about the world. In other words, to trigger paradigm shifts, which, as I mentioned before, are major changes in our underlying assumptions about life. There's a concept founded in Zen Buddhism called Beginner's Mind. Beginner's mind means to return to an almost childlike state of curiosity and wonder, uninfluenced by what we've come to accept as normal, as habit, as facts about what it means to be human. The phrasing of my mission statement was also inspired by author and biologist Merlin Sheldrake, who wrote the best-selling novel Entangled Life, where he covers the ins and outs of fungi and their impacts on the world and on our minds. He describes the effects of psilocybin, otherwise known as shrooms, as loosening our certainties about the world. Canadian and Hungarian author Gabor Mate urges us to question what we know in his recent book called The Myth of Normal, where he refers to our need as a species to bridge the gap between, quote, what we accept as normal and what our essence wants of us. And by what our essence wants of us, he means what might actually be better for us. Gabor describes this as humanity's most daunting challenge, yet greatest possibility. Which leads us into the second part of my mission statement, and that is to step out of our comfort zone and into our growth zone. The phrasing of this statement was inspired by meditation and spiritual teacher, Light Watkins, who speaks on comfort zones and growth zones to empower us to outgrow limiting spaces, to let go of practices that are no longer serving us. Maybe they never did. Indian American author and alternative medicine advocate Deepak Chopra refers to exercising this practice as moving closer to the state of being what he calls meta-human, advancing beyond the self-imposed limitations of our psyche. In terms of minding the gaps, let's revisit that train linked with this title. Imagine that the train station platform is our comfort zone. The train itself is our growth zone. The place we go to travel and explore, and the gap represents our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that have kept us from walking through the doors of the train, stepping from the comfort zone into the growth zone. The comfort zone is where a lot of us can get stuck, because it's where we formed our habits and default perception of the world that we've clung to, usually since we were little. Comfort zones, despite the name, are usually not comfortable at all. Imagine there's someone on the train platform struggling with low-grade addictions to alcohol, sex, social media, and work because they're normalized by their society. But this normalization stops them from stepping onto the train where they don't have to numb their pain. They can explore it, move through it, and grow. On the same platform, imagine someone else who gravitates towards emotionally unavailable partners because it feels familiar to the relationship they had with a parent. You can bet this person isn't happy in their love life, But to them, the chase feels familiar, and it's all they've ever known. They're stuck. And right beside those engaging and risky or upsetting patterns is someone on the platform who avoids risk altogether. They've built up walls around themselves as shelter to try and keep them safe. They don't take healthy risks or try new things out of fear of getting hurt. And so unfortunately and ironically, their walls also shelter them from all the beauty and discovery and growth. Indirectly or directly, we have been all of these people. They are you and you I. We get stuck and we ignore, blame, or hide from circumstances we could otherwise be moving through. We could be growing through what we are going through. And so, stepping out of our comfort zone and into our growth zone means getting onto that train. A fundamental step to accessing and exploring healthier ways of living opening our world to all kinds of new adventures, destinations, and experiences. St. Augustine, theologian and philosopher, said, quote, The world is a book, and those who do not travel read only a page, End quote. They're stuck. We can't travel on the growth train when we're a slave to our gaps, held hostage to the platform of our comfort zone. This stepping out can lead to brilliant and often unimagined possibilities for ourselves, We might not even know where the train's taking us, but when there's trust in the process, we'll come to realize that the choice to get moving was always, always better than staying stuck. To do all of this, we must first be mindful of the gaps that we've avoided, the things deep down in there that have scared us or have been falsely assumed as unchangeable, so much so that we've thought it best to stay in our comfort zones, or maybe not even recognized we're stuck there. It's by looking into these very gaps that will face our social norms, fears, desires to transform the act of taking that step into growth from scary or unnecessary to exciting and absolutely necessary for living a full and contented life, free from internal suffering. As I've seen with my clients and experienced for myself, three things can happen when it comes to our attention that we're stuck in a comfort zone on that platform. One, We accept we've allowed our gaps to hold us in our comfort zone, and we're ready to step out into the growth zone. 2. We recognize we're stuck, but we're not feeling ready to take that step into growth, either because we believe it's unnecessary, or because we're fearful of change. Sometimes both. 3. We deny that we're stuck altogether, and so we don't believe we need any saving or any growth. As a successful therapist and also as a human being sitting in sweatpants right now, I recognize that it's not my job to try to force change upon anyone. It can be incredibly difficult to get to outcome number one, moving into growth, when we're stuck. It's entirely up to us, no one else, on how we respond to our gaps. What I've witnessed and experienced when we do step into our growth zone is intense gratitude for our pain. Gratitude for our pain because often without pain, we wouldn't be pushed out of our comfort zones. As put eloquently by Buddhist monk Gelong Thubten, it is the compost in the garden that makes the flowers bloom. And to quote my less eloquent daily affirmation card deck, listen, bitch, flowers grow through dirt and shit. Keep going. All this to say that pain has the power to be transformative if we let it. I believe one of the hardest gaps to acknowledge are those that aren't causing us direct pain. Rather, they're just empty spaces that could otherwise be full. Whether that's full of love, creativity, forgiveness, sky's the limit. Paul McCartney summed this up well when describing the process of writing a song. He says, at the end of the session, there is not a black hole anymore, but a colored landscape. And we can think of the gaps that way. Let's turn them into colored landscapes. From this, we see that he made something out of nothing. Imagine if we all did this. Now, we don't have to be as skilled as the Beatles, but we have far more creativity in us to share it than we often give credit for. So, what I do feel is my responsibility is to advocate for how beautiful and full life can be by unburdening ourselves from the difficulties of living in fear of our gaps. To empower people on what enlightenment can look like and feel like. Life can be so, so much easier if we let it, if we open up to the idea that there's a whole whack of stuff out there that we don't know. We don't even know what we don't know, but we sure as hell won't learn anything new if we believe we already know it all. No matter the outcome of minding the gaps, I'm a firm believer that the amount of love and light we can shed on them will never hurt someone. And as listeners, you guys are likely not here unless you're even a little bit interested in expanding your thinking and in challenging your norms. I touch on this on my therapist profile page where I was asked what I value most in a client and I responded, their commitment to self-reflection, and their openness to change. I've seen clients transform their entire lives by being mindful of their gaps, hands down the most fulfilling part of the job. I was recently reading a book by American author Gabby Bernstein called The Universe Has Your Back, and she mentions how being conscious of the darkness in the world fuels our desire to bring more light. Being conscious of our gaps fuels our desire to overcome them. With that, I invite you to join me on this journey of shedding light on our gaps. I hope that Minding the Gaps can become as contagious and exciting for you as it has been for myself, my clients, and my loved ones. Since the subject of this podcast is on what it means to be human, just as in a therapy session, there's absolutely no limit to the subjects we'll be covering here. I'll be hosting episodes on everything from trauma, diagnostics, social policy, to sex, drugs, spirituality, and how ultimately everything's connected, including us as a collective consciousness. Stay tuned for future episodes of Mind the Gaps where I'll be inviting on experts in related fields to get some interesting dialogues going. For the rest of today's episode, I'm Kirsten Davidson and I'll be your expert on the subject of mindfulness. So by now you've got a taste of what mindfulness looks like after listening to my explanation of what it means to mind the gaps. Let's go even deeper. To be mindful at its core means to be fully immersed in the present moment. Practicing mindfulness as defined by German author and spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle means to practice non-judgmentally noticing when our mind wanders away from the present and in the noticing we bring ourselves back to the now. The root of mindfulness as a concept is grounded in ancient Buddhist philosophy, psychology, and religion. Buddhist monk Geelong Thubten says, Mindfulness is not about doing, it's about undoing. Sitting with your mind and letting it be. Don't try to chase it away. The term mindfulness has become somewhat of a buzzword in the Western world, especially over the past 20 years as it's become more integrated into psychology practices and related research. Now, I'm all for mindfulness, obviously, but the disappointing thing about this sort of pop culture mindfulness is that there's a lot of focus on the outcome of being immersed in the present without much guidance on how to actually get there, the process. We've got a whole whack of social media messages, quotes, and people saying, just live in the moment, just focus on the present. And well, I don't know about you guys, but when I first got wind of this concept as a teenager, it actually made me frustrated because I thought, okay, yeah, easier said than done. How am I supposed to focus on the present moment when I've got a million other things to think about? How do I shut my brain off? And like most people who first report trying to practice mindfulness or meditation with this sort of misinformed view on it or a surface level of understanding, I believed I was bad at being mindful. This feeling of being bad at practicing mindfulness has been addressed by countless experts who argue that you can't actually be bad at mindfulness. And here's why. Our mind exists in three time zones all at once, the past, the present, and the future. John Barg, social psychologist, uses this explanation to hammer home how, quote, even the most skilled meditators don't exist only in the present, end quote. It's an impossible expectation for us to wipe our mind clean of thought. If we hold this view, we'll get mad at ourselves when our minds won't shut up. And we can see how this creates an internal hostility which is truly the opposite of practicing mindfulness. Let's go back to the definition for a second. Mindfulness means non-judgmentally noticing our thoughts as they've drifted away from the present, and in the noticing, we return to the now. By this definition, we wouldn't actually be able to practice mindfulness if we didn't experience our mind wandering into the past and the future, because there wouldn't be any thoughts or emotions to bring ourselves back from. The act of noticing when our mind wanders away from the present is mindfulness, since it's inevitable that our mind will wander. We only tend to think that we're bad at being mindful when we hold this misconception that thoughts about the past or the future are bad, when really, they're an essential part of the process. Before we continue, there are some important distinctions I'd like to make. The first being that getting caught up in stressing about the past or the present is different from mind wandering. In psychology, we call our fixation on the past or present rumination. Rumination means constant obsessive thinking about things that have happened or things that might happen, which unsurprisingly leads us to feelings like guilt, fear, and overall unhappiness. Whereas mind-wandering has been regarded in the literature as a positive, constructive daydreaming characterized by pleasant thoughts. A 2017 study found that mind-wandering facilitates healthy self-reflection and exploration of inner feelings from a positive lens. It's actually essential for creativity, goal planning, and overall happiness. Philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris has discussed this on his podcast called Waking Up. He shared that some of his greatest ideas have come from going on a walk without any distractions, no headphones, just him and nature. It's often rumination or distraction that gets in the way of mind wandering. And it's been argued that we actually need more of this healthy wandering. So stepping into past and future time zones is not all bad. In fact, if we didn't have the capacity to reflect on our lives or make plans, we'd probably have died off as a species since these modes of thinking are essential for basic survival. Our minds can, will, and even should at times drift. It makes sense then that there's an optimal amount of reflecting and planning necessary for our well-being. And we breach that optimal threshold when we reflect or plan unnecessarily. How do we know when it's unnecessary? Well, check in and reflect if you're reflecting or planning is causing unease and is getting in the way of witnessing and experiencing most of your life unfolding right in front of you right now. If the answer is yes, then you've been ruminating. A good test to check in on how often we're mindful is to ask yourself if you can recall what your friend who you were having lunch with said two minutes ago, what your partner told you that their plan was for today, or what the words on the page of your book meant before you flipped it. Excluding those who might suffer from dementia, if we can't explain any of these contents, we were not being mindful of the goings-on around us, no matter if we were ruminating or mind-wandering. And we do this all the time. In his book, The Power of Now, Eckhart proposes that we can maximize our time in this optimal zone of presence by setting aside only the necessary amount of time to plan and reflect. Otherwise, we'll miss what he calls the power of now, the beautiful and complex moment-to-moment experience that is our life. And, well, that's all we've got. To quote Ferris Bueller on his grand day off, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Let's dive into what mindfulness means in the context of living in a human body. Buddhist philosophy states that we are consciousness, that our most natural state is to be present. It states that our true self is a form of consciousness, having the experience of what author Michael Singer outlines as the three great distractors one, the outside world, two, thoughts, and three, emotions. Naturally, we experience the outside world coming in through our senses, and then we experience thoughts and emotions. Now, since the topic of consciousness is pretty complex, it's highly debated in science, philosophy, psychology, medicine, and religion. Examining consciousness is the study of thinking about thinking, just like the little person you'll see in my logo is doing. Trying to figure out what it is that makes you, you, you in there, you inside your body. The same you who was there when you were born and who is there now. There's a famous philosophical problem on the subject of identity called the ship of Theseus. Imagine a ship and gradually over time, one by one, every single part of the ship gets replaced for maintenance. The question is then, is the ship that exists after all the replacements the same as the ship that existed before, or is it fundamentally a different ship? There's arguments for both sides of this, and neither have been deemed more right or wrong than the other. That's philosophy for you. It's all about the probing of questions and less about the answers. Of course, humans are more complex than ships, and that's because we're conscious beings. Our consciousness, the quote-unquote you in there, is definitely the same you in there from when you were a baby. Yet, like that ship, most of the cells in your body have been replaced and regenerated over the years. You certainly don't look the same as a newborn, yet you'd probably get some weird looks if you claim that you are not the same you who was born into this world. For sake of this conversation, please feel free to identify your consciousness as whatever feels most right to you. Whether you'd like to refer to this as you in there, as Michael Singer does, spirit, soul, inner self, essence, consciousness, anything that feels right to represent the consciousness that exists within but also beyond the limitations of your body, mind, and experiences. Let's bring those three great distractors to center stage. The outside world, thoughts, and emotions. As I said before, the outside world comes in through our senses, and we experience thoughts and emotions from the data that has been collected. This is a very important point. We experience the world, thoughts, and emotions. This means that we are not our thoughts and emotions. Rather, we are experiencing them as a response to our exposure to the outside world. This idea might feel a bit scary. If we're not our thoughts, emotions, and experiences, what are we? For most of us, our automatic assumption is that we are all of these things. But rest assured that since we're not ships, we don't risk losing ourselves as our thoughts and ideas change, as our emotions change, as our bodies change. There's an exercise that Deepak Chopra suggests in his book, Metahuman that I thought we could try together. Take a second to sit or lie down comfortably in a silent space. If you're driving or you're in a loud, crowded place, come back to this later and try it before bed sometime. When I say go, we're going to stare up at the ceiling, pick one spot to fix your gaze on, and try to hold an empty space in your mind, void of thought and feeling, just staring even just for a second. Okay, go. Let's take a moment to reflect on how you didn't vanish when you weren't thinking or feeling. You didn't cease to exist. You were still you in the absence of a thought or a feeling. This state you were in is what Deepak calls no thought, and it reminds me of the Sanskrit yoga practice called drishti, which is to pick a spot in the room and hold a fixed gaze while you're in a pose. Something that came to mind as I was reading Deepak's book were times when I've been under general anesthetic, a shared experience for many of us. About a year ago, I had my wisdom teeth removed. One minute I was propped up in the doctor's chair, and hours later, but what felt like seconds later, I woke up groggy in a waiting room. Did I cease to exist during those hours? No. Was I dead? No. Let's call it a blackout moment where I got a chemically induced break from my thoughts, emotions, perceptions of the outside world. And with four less parts of my quote-unquote ship, my four teeth. The dad joke was right there, I could not say it. But of course, during and after that procedure, I was still me. When we can start looking at our human experience as just that, an experience that is flexible and ever-changing, ever-moving, not fixed, this frees us up to start noticing the parts of our ship that might not be serving us, knowing that we will still remain us as we replace those parts and ultimately evolve. So if the three great distractors are happening to us, it is not that they are us. How and why do we keep identifying with them so often? There are a ton of great metaphors and stories that can help to answer this, so I've compiled some of my favorites here to share with you. Consider your consciousness as a beam of light, and now imagine that your thoughts and emotions are objects in a room. Michael Singer argues that identifying with our thoughts, emotions, and experiences is to falsely assume that we are the objects that our light shines upon. I'll say that again. Identifying with our thoughts, emotions, and experiences is to falsely assume that we are the objects that our light shines upon. It's not even a debate that, of course, your coffee table is not the same as the sunlight shining on it, but when it comes to our mind and our senses, our automatic assumption is that we are the data that is around us. We cling to this data and call it me. We've been taught that our sense of self comes from this data. Indian author and spiritual teacher Sadhguru says, We have given too much significance to the thought process. Your thought process is just a consequence of the data you've gathered through the five senses. There's a bit done by Australian comedian Jim Jeffries that reminds me of what can happen when we cling to our experiences. He explains how his son, who was four years old at the time, had terrible food poisoning. Jeffries says that his son was, quote, shitting and vomiting everywhere. Because of how old this poor kid was, he didn't understand that his experience was temporary, that it would eventually be over. Jeffries explains that his son looked at him from the toilet, distraught, and said, well, I guess this is me now. Jeffries actually named that comedy tour of his This Is Me Now. Now, let's hold a mirror up to ourselves and think of all the times we've believed, well, this is me now. Consciously or unconsciously, we do it a lot. This has become an inside joke between my family. When we feel like life isn't going our way, we'll say, well, this is me now, to make light of how easy we let our minds tell us that we're a slave to our experiences. Default mode for most is that when we experience pain, we either cling to it or avoid it. Either way leads to suffering because suffering comes from our resistance to accepting reality, even when reality is painful. As an example, let's say a child loses a parent in a plane crash, and as an adult, they refuse to ever travel by plane. They've let their past define their future because they cling to that loss. They've said, this is me now. I'm the person who doesn't fly. Now let's say the same child internalizes this loss. They blocked out the fact that it even happened, but now every time they travel by plane, they have a panic attack. They have also let their past define their future. By shoving it down, it's forcing its way back up in the form of anxiety. They'd also be saying, this is me now. I am someone who has a panic disorder. Clinging and avoiding are both forms of denying reality as it is today. They both involve letting our experiences define us. So getting back to these examples, let's say we strip away all the suffering Whether it's at the forefront or shoved in the back of our mind, you in there are still there, even without the suffering. Clearly, there's more to us than all of this feeling and emotion stuff that we experience. Founder of the Therapeutic Intervention Internal Family Systems, Richard Schwartz, refers to our thoughts and feelings as, quote unquote, the noise. And the common assumption is that we are the noise when really we are the peace that lies beneath it. Consciousness is the peace that we can return to when we surrender to reality. Now, it might sound like a big ask to surrender to the death of a parent, and in an entirely different and non-comparable way, it's a big ask to surrender to shitting and vomiting. But I'll tell you, it sucks a lot more for the person who believes that without a doubt, their pain will never end, and that it defines who they are as a person. We've all been that person. Maybe we're them right now, but we just don't have to be. We have the power to free ourselves and that in and of itself is pretty amazing. As philosopher Carl Jung said, quote, I am not what happened to me, I am what I choose to become, end quote. We can't take responsibility for the innumerable amount of things that have had to happen to lead you to this moment right here and now, but we can take responsibility for how we react to the world as it appears in our consciousness. Understanding that we're separate from our thoughts Feelings and experiences puts us in a way way better position to practice the art of noticing what comes into our consciousness. This is because when we notice our thoughts and emotions, we are by definition an observer of these experiences. As Deepak says, the awareness of a thought is not a thought because it is an observation of a thought. I've seen and experienced greater success taking on the role of the observer by thinking of the observer as a sort of third party. I like to imagine being lifted out of my body and tapping myself on the shoulder to bring me back to the present. This noticing has been given many names in the literature, and my go-tos are drawing back or witnessing consciousness, both of which I've used with clients to describe the act of observing one's own thoughts and emotions as a sort of zooming out. When we're zoomed into the three great distractors, we don't have a clear picture on reality, but when we're zoomed out, We gain a bird's eye view on our distractors and we can see more clearly what thoughts and emotions are present, maybe even why they got there to begin with, and we can then decide how we'd like to respond to them. If you're wondering when you return to the present, the exact moment when you noticed you were not present is also the exact moment you came back to it. It's as uncomplicated as that. Michael Singer says, this practice is like turning a light on in a dark room. As soon as the light is on, the darkness is immediately gone. As soon as we've caught ourselves lost in thought, we're back in the present. We can think of this moment of wakefulness as similar to the moment when you wake up from a vivid dream, when you need a moment to reflect and pull yourself back to earth before getting out of bed, or when you're lost in thought and a friend says, Hello, where'd you go? when you're zoned out. American meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein notes how, for as many times as we are lost in thought, Exactly that many times we've awakened from being lost. And it's important to pay attention to what it feels like to wake up. Now that we understand the ins and outs of how we experience the three great distractors, the world, our thoughts, and our feelings, it's time to make friends with them. This brings us to the final and defining feature of mindfulness, which is to hold a space of non-judgment when we notice that our mind drifted let's put you in the seat of the observer, the seat of consciousness. You've just noticed you were zoned out. Now what? We're zoomed out of our thoughts and emotions. What do we do with them? I was listening to a reflection from Goldstein the other day, and he said how important it is to notice the quote-unquote tone with which we approach our emotions and thoughts as we've noticed them. Is it judgmental or compassionate? Judgment looks like telling ourselves we're defective unskilled or even failures for having zoned out when we go down that road we're spending even more time away from the present because we've dove right back into the negative thoughts and feelings about how we were lost in our thoughts and our feelings this is not mindfulness this is simply recognition that our mind wandered and then punishing ourselves compassion looks like meeting our thoughts and emotions with openness curiosity and acceptance that our mind drifted Mindfulness is not about running from our thoughts and getting mad when they catch up with us. It's about practicing our ability to compassionately return to our natural state, the present. And we now know three very important things that can help get us there. One, everyone ruminates, everyone mind wanders. Two, you are not your thoughts, emotions, or experiences. You are a conscious witness to these experiences. Three, your mind drifting is essential to the process of mindfulness. If it didn't drift, we couldn't bring it back. Although we're not our thoughts or our feelings, we can't deny our experience of them. We've got to face them to go beyond them. Just like the mind the gaps metaphor of facing the gap so we can get onto the growth train. Getting curious about our thoughts and emotions essentially describes the process of going to therapy, which is why I believe the therapeutic process requires so much courage to really sit and be with our mind. It can get pretty overwhelming in there in our mind when we're caught up ruminating. So for a lot of us, we mask these thoughts and feelings by keeping busy or drowning out the noise with substances. Whenever I talk about this, I'm reminded of a song written by Canadian indie rock band Mother Mother called Sick of the Silence. In an interview during the COVID-19 pandemic with the lead singer, Ryan Goldemon explains how the song was a response to how loud his thoughts became deafening even, in the silence and boredom of his home during lockdowns. So yes, it can be really, really challenging to sit with our thoughts and emotions. It can be hard to be present, especially when the thoughts and emotions are painful. The good news is, when we really work to understand them, we transcend them, we go beyond them. Otherwise, they just keep coming up again and again. We can confront the darkest parts of ourselves to move into growth and wellness. And my go-to line for this is from Gabor Mate. He says, trauma that is not transformed will be transmitted. I'll say that again. Trauma that is not transformed will be transmitted. To help explain this, I like to use the following analogy. Shoving down and or clinging to painful thoughts and emotions is like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. One, this gets pretty tiring. And two, the moment the wind blows the wrong way the moment something doesn't go our way in life, all that stuff comes shooting up to the surface. So I say, let it. Let it come to the surface so that we can identify what it is and then deflate it. We take back the power from our pain when we address it with compassion and curiosity. You can then get back to floating, bobbing, and diving without any fear of all the pain coming up because you've already addressed it. You've disempowered it by getting familiar with it. When we're in this zoomed-out state of noticing and making sense of our thoughts and emotions, let's ask ourselves one very important question. Is there anything I can do to change how I'm feeling, thinking, acting? My absolute favorite sentiment about control is called the Serenity Prayer, written by American theologian Reinhold Nyberg, which goes, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So let's check in with ourselves right now. Your mind has no doubt drifted at least once during this episode. So go back to that thought or emotion and follow it. Now it's essential that we follow it gently and with kindness and openness. So I want you to imagine a younger version of yourself, a childhood version. Picture yourself taking their hand as they guide you down this thought path. Ask your inner child, what was the thought or feeling? What in the outside world could have sparked this thought or feeling? Or what in my inner world sparked it? What am I feeling now? Get familiar with it before arriving at the final question. Is the thing I'm thinking about within my control, or is it out of my control? If it's within your control, take some time today to attend to it. Give yourself the credit to courageously change the things that you can change, even if for today, That's just the consideration of change. This might be as simple as, I remembered I left my candle burning at home and I felt panicked, a tightness in my chest. What will I do? I'll turn this car around now and I'll go blow it out. Or it might be as complex as, I felt depressed because my partner left me last week. What will I do? The answer is not as straightforward as blowing out a candle. And so it requires more thought. Maybe changing means processing this loss in therapy or with family and friends. If the thing is not within your control, ask yourself if you need to sit with it a bit longer before letting it go. Give yourself space to feel it so that one day, maybe even today, it dissolves and you evolve. Maybe you're reflecting on the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're already doing everything you can to work through this grief and all you need is a hug rather than more help. It's like having a wound that's still aching even after it's been properly tended to. The ache is part of the heal. Whether we are courageously changing the things that are within our control or surrendering to the things outside of our control, we are accepting reality as it is. Through this acceptance, we can't be in suffering because as I mentioned earlier, suffering only comes from resisting pain. Mindfulness helps us use pain as a tool for growth. Mindfulness helps us recognize when we need more time spent on reflecting or planning and then, once we've acted accordingly or surrender, it frees us up to be fully immersed in the present, to notice the beauty and honestly incomprehensible wonder of the world. A fireball exploded 13.8 billion years ago and now you're driving home to blow out the man-made candle you left burning. How insane is that? Think of the innumerable things that have had to happen for the world to appear as it is right now in our consciousness. It'll never stop blowing my mind. There's so much to be in awe of in our grand universe and in the little universes within ourselves. Let's keep tuning into this and then never stop. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, it's always appreciated for you to follow Mind the Gaps on your podcast streaming platform and to share it with your friends and family. To stay up to date on the show, you can find me on Instagram at kirsten.davidson. Thanks for Minding the Gaps with me today. I'll see you next time on the journey out of our comfort zone and into our growth zone.